0: reading your wikipedia
1: page okay. is almost as wild as steven seagal's wikipedia page have you ever read that <laughs> no Damn.
2: but i'll t- i'll take that That's one of the best comments like anybody's <laughs> ever paid me.
1: if if you need like a... except for
2: he's like kind of like a right-wing nut at this point yeah like, no totally all but... right so i won't be offended by
1: that. hi i'm helen hollyman editor chief of munchies and welcome back to munchies the podcast When I think about the U.S., nothing gets more American than our beer. We're a nation with a strong legacy of brewers, from the early Native Americans who made the first beer with maize and birch sap before the Europeans arrived, to the immigrants who brought their own riffs and techniques. But by the time prohibition rolled around, many flavors and styles were lost. By 1919, the government became the buzzkill that outlawed alcoholic consumption. And through much of the 20th century, brewing at home was considered illegal. In 1978, that all changed when President Jimmy Carter lifted rules that were imposed during Prohibition and opened the door to making beer at home, sparking a grassroots movement of home brewers and delicious beer. These days, craft beer is bigger than ever in America. So on today's episode, we're celebrating that by grabbing a pint with Sam Cass. The guy who put craft beer in one of the most unexpected places, President Obama's White House. The optics of food is a subtly vital part of politics. And as we all witnessed in our recent election, politicians on the campaign trail choose their food moments very carefully. What did it mean when Hillary Clinton ate artisanal ice cream in the East Village while Donald Trump stuck his fork into a bucket of KFC on his private jet? These food ops only last a moment in time, but their impact can linger much longer than the candidates themselves. For politicians, food is a powerful tool to remind voters that they're human. So if food is a part of our cultural identity, then what does it mean when the president chooses a salad over fast food? As Obama's former personal chef, Sam Cass had incredible influence. Not simply because he was cooking for the leader of the free world, but because he used that opportunity to really dig in and make significant policy change. Today, he's using the lessons learned in that role to build a more sustainable future and support startups focused on making healthy eating more accessible for Americans. We're hanging out with Sam Cass at Other Half Brewing Company here in Brooklyn. They're a small, young craft brewery that's exploded with success in a really short amount of time. It's also the perfect setting to extract some secrets from the White House.
2: Delicious beer.
1: Really good beer, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It's really good beer. Very good. (laughs) So just a quick FYI. Other half, where we're recording this, is an active brewery. So you're definitely going to hear some forklifts and some other random sounds in the background. You
2: guys listening to this can't see this room we're in, but this room is very small. And this room is about the size of the White House kitchen. Uh, Well, I had dreamed that it was going to be this giant kitchen that stretched on for miles and, you know, was perfect. And, you know, all the waste equipment and everything shiny and just giant. I, I had this reoccurring dream, like, for the whole couple months leading up to walking in. The thing about the White House, you can't really, you just get there when you get there. It's not like, you go and practice and hang out and figure everything out. It's like January 20th, all right, you're in, <laughs> you know? And there's really nothing that prepares you for that place. Uh, and then like, get in there and like figure out like where the kitchen is, <laughs> where the fridge is, <laughs> how do I get upstairs? I mean, it was insane. And you're walking in like, hey guys, uh, where's the chicken, you know? <laughs> uh, And that night wasn't about the food that, you know, that night was just about getting some, so I cooked some very basic like chicken meal and everybody was very intrigued about what I was going to make. And I think they were super disappointed, like, what is this? Like, (laughs) you know, this is not like, where's the, where's the show, you know? But that's not what it was about.
1: Wait, so what was like in the walk-in, was it fully outfitted or were you having to sort of? Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: no, 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 no. I put in my order, I told them what I, I emailed them what I wanted. But no, you know, there's like lots of parties and stuff going on around then. So there's, you know, there's always food in the White House. (laughs) That's never a problem.
1: How did you first get connected with them?
2: Yeah, so I'm from Chicago, from Hyde Park, where they're from. And so I actually knew them when I was in high school, but uh, not super well, but they had no help. It was just grandma, uh... It was not like a big staff or anything. Uh, he had just announced the, the run for the White House. Um, you know, the first day starting a campaign and the kids were young and she needed some little support.
1: What kind of stuff were you cooking before they went to the White House? Like what was the sort of average weeknight meal?
2: Um, you know, really typical stuff. I mean, my focus has always been on, on health and well-being through food. I mean, delicious food, I hate health food. I think health food is disgusting, but, but delicious, good food. Um, and so, you know, just regular stuff. And, and the same was true through the White House. There's, you know, lots of fish or chicken, lean proteins, lots of whole grains, um, brown rice and farro and things like that, and um, plenty of vegetables, uh, but nothing fancy. There's no interest in fancy food.
1: I, I think what's so cool is you guys made the first beer ever, historically, in the White House. We did. How did you even begin that process? And be
2: like, Mr. President, what about making a beer? You down? <laughs> That's kind of how it went. Uh, he was like, Yeah, sure. That sounds like a good idea. I was like, You know, you know, it's a, it's a big thing, and people are doing it in their basements and their garages all over the country, and I figure kind of in solidarity and in that spirit, we should make one too. He was like, I think it's a great idea, go for it. Uh, I was like, by the way, you have to pay for it. He's like, <laughs> he looked at me a little funny because he <laughs> did have to pay for everything uh, out of his personal, they, had to, they have to pay, something that nobody, people don't really realize is that they have to pay for all their own food. Anytime there's a guest over or anything, they're paying for everything. Uh, so, so the whole beer operation, he had to personally fund, the government wasn't <laughs> gonna pick up the tab on that. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, so we did it. Um, you know, just like anybody in the garage, we had two five-gallon carboys. Uh, you know, it was nothing fancy, but it was it was shockingly delicious. We, we, after the first batch, Tafari, a good friend of mine and one of the other chefs, did most of the actual brewing. And you know, so we went through the whole process, and and finally, finally was ready and. We tasted the first, uh, the first bottle, and we're just like, "Holy shit, this is really good!" You know, like, <laughs> no way. Like, I figured beer making beer is hard. Like, it's not hard to actually make it; it's hard to make it taste good. Um, and, you know, it was just, uh, it was, uh, it was just really tasty. We had the first White House beehive ever in the, on the south grounds. Uh, so we did a honey ale, a honey blonde, and a honey porter. The porter wasn't a true porter, but it was dark, and it was, that was my favorite. It was delicious, really good, complex.
1: I mean, what's the White House honey? What did it taste like?
2: It was amazing. Like we had So the hive's right on the, like right on the south, south lawn. You can see it from the street. Um, and that hive sort of sits in bee heaven. I mean, for like 200 years, people have been planting every flowering tree and bush and shrub they could come up with, right? Um, and like D.C. in the spring and summer is just beautiful. There's, there's always some something blossoming. So depending on what part of the season it was, it tasted very different. Like in the spring, it was really light and really flowery. And, and you know as you move through the season, it got more complex and more layered and bigger nose. It was interesting. We would probably harvest four times out of the season I and mean, we were pulling like 200 plus pounds of honey out of that one hive.
0: Wow. Yeah
2: we, we had to keep stacking supers on it. It got so, really tall because the, the, during the summer the colony was getting very strong. The key to making good beer is is just being really diligent about cleaning everything really well because a lot of times what happens is you get a little bacteria in there. You'll still make beer it'll just have an off taste. Well we looked back to see if there was ever you know, what the history of it was. I, and I assume there was a rich history of brewing beer back in the day. But the archivists came back and said there was they couldn't find any evidence of it. Uh, lot, lots of evidence of drinking during Prohibition, but no evidence of uh, any, any beer or liquor, beer brewed or liquor distilled. Uh, so, yeah.
1: And how many bottles would you say you guys would bottle?
2: I don't remember. 2 5 gallon you yeah, know you would probably get i don't know we got like i don't know 100 bottles 120 bottles something like that there's a good story about that somebody um and, and the president was on some bus trip i don't remember where he was um uh, like Iowa or something Ohio Pennsylvania i don't remember and somebody asked him uh, for a beer and we you know they always carried beer with you know there was beer on the truck on, on the bus and so the president was like i gotta get this guy a beer like the next week, somebody sends me a link to these guys that who had bought this beer, that beer on eBay for $10,000. Uh, and there, there, there they were with shot glass. There's 12 of them. So they each paid $800 for a shot of the beer. And they were all toasting their little ounce of beer uh, and were seemingly quite pleased. And so I went to. The president said hey man listen I know you got this deficit issue you're dealing with I got the solution for <laughs> you then. like we're just going to ramp up production we'll sell them for 10 grand a pop we will knock this deficit <laughs> out I, I'm trying to imagine who would have bought any other beer for more than $10,000 for 12 ounces of beer
1: that's crazy. It was crazy that's crazy but it was
2: awesome
1: I was so into
2: it I was we were so proud
1: um so another I mean incredible thing that you did was you you worked with the first lady on the garden and um, I think you know that's something that we've all watched throughout the years is the let's move campaign and also just the idea of sustainability and you know actually caring about sort of where your food comes from what was it like to work in that garden and how were you sort of approaching it especially from your perspective
2: well the garden had kind of a, a couple different you know, w- spots in my life. Uh, I mean, I think strategically. You know, the reason we did it was to really both, you know, put a big stake in the ground in a, with with a lot of symbolic power around the importance of food, where it comes from, our health, the problems that we're facing, and to really showcase that this was something that the first lady really cared about. but it was also to take the temperature of the country and to figure out, um, you know. Are people into this? You know, is this the right time to take on this issue? Um, and I knew because I was closer to the issues that this was going to be a really big deal. I think a lot of the other staff were sort of like, yeah, go have fun with your little garden. Um, so I knew it was going to be a big deal, but um, but it just blew me away about just the enormity of the response, not just in the United States, but globally. Um, you know she was on the cover of basically every newspaper around the world and it was because everybody could really relate to the images of her you know planting you know little little baby lettuces and whatever we were planting uh, with with young children i mean it's a universal image um so that was quite you know powerful and that really that success led to let's move um, we knew we wanted to do we didn't have the name let's move that point but we knew we wanted to do a big Child and Family Health Initiative, but only if you know we felt like it was right. So, so, that led to that. On the other side, as a chef, I mean, I cooked for them five nights a week through the whole time, and you know it was just amazing. Uh, there's no better way to cook. And when the you know when you you know the politics and the sort of intensity of the White House. Just got to be a little too much. I just would just walk down to the garden and hang out in the garden and harvest some things and check on everything. And you know, you felt like I was twenty miles away from the White House. Uh, so I, it had sort of a, it was both a sanctuary and a really powerful strategic symbol that we, we working on.
1: So once you left the White House, you've been very busy. Uh-huh. Um, tell me about what you've been up to, because you've been doing a lot.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so I mean, I care about impact. Uh, I'm really focused on the intersection between climate change, sustainability, and, and, and health, and food. Um, I think that nexus is going to define uh, the food system for the foreseeable future. Uh, and I think technology innovation is going to will and needs to transform how we're growing, distributing, processing, consuming our food. Um, you know, besides, you know, incredible advances for better and for worse in processing technology, you know, the vast majority of, and some innovations in how we grow, but mostly just around scale and combines and some innovation in seed, which is obviously quite controversial. Um, there's, you know, food and ag has just been kind of missed by the modernization of our world. Um. And we're paying the price for it. So, um, like, for example, we're asking families to cook more. Everybody's sort of yelling about how important it is to cook. Hold up. prodding families to spend more time in the kitchen, but we're not making it easier for families to cook. Um, uh, and relative to the rest of our lives, you know, it's taking longer and longer because the rest of our lives are being sped up and no people just don't have two and a half hours to spend in the kitchen, you know, or two hours or an hour and a half even. So we got to do, you really leverage technology to make our food system function better, be much more sustainable, much more uh, focused on the health of the end consumer. Um, so that's my work. So I'm doing, uh, I'm a venture partner in Acre Venture, uh, which is investing in companies that are trying to change the food system around health, transparency, and sustainability. Um, doing strategy a lot, mostly for young startups as well, just trying to help uh, companies who are that have that mission um, to be successful. Um, and I'm excited about it. I think, you know, we had a lot done in Washington. Um, I think the, the legacy of the First Lady and her leadership will only really come to come into sight in 10, 15, 20 years when the kids who are now in kindergarten grow up. Um, but I think you know we, we picked most of the low-hanging fruit there was to pick. We picked all of it, actually, and some that was not low-hanging. Um, and I think the next wave of change, although there's more work to do in Washington and farm bills coming up, that's going to be a big, nasty fight. You know, Trump today is talking about drastic cuts to snap, which is just abhorrent and immoral. Um, uh, So there's going to be big, important fights in Washington that people need to be engaged on uh, and need to show up for. Otherwise, people will starve. People will die. I mean, it's like high stakes. You know, 350 million people in America and billions around the world, they're eating certain things now for whatever reason, Um, mostly because they like it. yeah, government policy influence it, companies, marketing influence it, there's lots of things that we've got to deal with. But, um, but food is quite a personal thing, and so changing it is complicated. It's not just the politics, of which are nasty, um, and lots of fights to be had, but it's also it's what people, how they understand themselves, uh, how they understand who they're not. Um, And habits, you know, run deep. It's our culture. Changing culture is the hardest thing. And so that's really the challenge. Um, And so I uh, could not be more optimistic because the change we've seen since we walked in the White House, the change we've seen has just been extraordinary. Uh, We take it for granted now. Um, But even just just the garden itself, I mean, when we planted that garden, when I went to the folks at the White House and said, so, you know, part of the, thing we want to do is to tear up the most iconic lawn in the world and plant a bunch of tomatoes and squash and zucchini. Like, <laughs> how does that sound, dude? They thought I was completely out of my mind. Um, and it was crazy. It was a totally crazy thing to do. Now it's the most normal, obvious thing. Of course, there's a vegetable garden in the White House. Like, obviously, right? It makes total sense. But it was a totally crazy thing to do. Um, and so I think these... It's being normalized in our culture and and particularly for the younger generations, you know, kids under 25 and under, this is who they are. This is their identity. It's how they express politics. It is what they should be. I mean, I think they're hitting the nail on the head, but that's not going away anytime soon. Uh, So I think this change is only going to accelerate regardless of who's in the White House or whatever else is going on.
1: You know, a lot of times whenever I speak to people from Europe or Asia, the feedback about American diet or culture is always like, oh, you guys like processed foods and you're into fast food. And the idea of the, the market is a very different concept. Mm-hmm. Thinking about the way we are today, what do you think our biggest challenge is as eaters in this country?
2: Um, well, I mean, so just to address that, that sort of statement... That of course is true on, so, on some levels, but it's also like the, the notion that we don't have food culture in America is just total bullshit. Uh, when you actually look at the history of American cuisine, it is deep and rich and amazing and delicious uh, and, and wide ranging, um, you know, from, from New Orleans to Boston, to Chicago, to out west in California, and, and all kinds of places in between. I mean, we have incredible food culture. Uh, you know, I think we lost the path a little bit um, with a lot of the hyper-processing of, of our food and those kind of products. But people also got to remember, uh, convenience is, is important. Uh, part of the reason in the 20s and 30s, people were all coming home is because women weren't really allowed to work. And so, you know, it's a p- part of freeing up time meant you know part of women going to work meant that there's a gap for you know industry to fill 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 part of that void should women be leading this country should all men be out of office and women be running every corporation and leading this country yes. absolutely yes <laughs> uh, and so I think it's absolutely for the better and in fact we, we got a long way to go um, um, you know so but but we but you know there's some there were benefits now we swung too far, um, and we have to course correct. Um, so I think the biggest challenges are um, providing uh, fundamentally nourishing food to everybody at a price that they can afford, and in a way that doesn't further degrade the environment. I mean, I think food and ag is the second globally, the second largest contributor of greenhouse gas emissions, um, second only to energy. About 25%. And the curve is terrible. Like, we're, it's going up dramatically, whereas energy is actually, you know, we can see a path to plateauing. Um, and the, the, the degradation of our soil and our water is, is really quite scary, particularly when you, in the face of climate change, growing foods become much, much more difficult. Um, so it's gonna be harder to grow fruits and vegetables, for example, at a price that's affordable. Right now, we're not doing a good enough job. And just maintaining the status quo uh, is going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the big challenge, is how do we create systems that, um, you know, we talk about sustainable agriculture all the time, but we need to start talking about sustainable eating because farmers aren't going to be able to grow uh, in a manner that actually is building the health of the soil and, and you know, not, not using too much water, et cetera, if people aren't eating that system. Um, and so we got a lot of work to do there. I
1: mean, we're sitting in a craft brewery, you know, thinking yeah. about like...
2: Delicious beer.
1: Really good beer, right? hmm It's really good beer. Very good. <laughs> you know, that movement is such a... I think the word grassroots, and that's been yep. a term that has been echoed a lot lately across this country. Mm. And I think, um, you know, it's... Beer is at... The best time it's probably ever been um, in this country and it's very small cities and big cities you have these incredible uh entrepreneurs and i think you know looking back to all of the amazing work that you guys did when you all were in the white house um, we're living in an uncertain era where a lot of things are still sort of being distilled down and To what degree do you think policy in general does impact sustainability and our eating methods? Um, And how can you also be proactive about it despite that?
2: Yeah. Um, So I I think policy is really important. Obviously, you know, I spent a lot of years working on it. Uh, I think it's critical. I think a lot of these policies shape, you know, they shape the, the playing field, they shape Um, incentives for people but I I think um, uh, and so engaging you know on your school board, engaging at your office, engaging uh, on city council, engaging the mayor, at every level making your voice heard around food issues that matter to you is really important and we're never going to see you know, I I always found it so funny and like kind of uh, funny and sad really of all this chatter about like asking a question about food in the presidential debate it's such a cop out uh, from, from those who echoed that as if somehow if there's one question uh, then the, the issue would be solved or somehow it's a big breakthrough the reason why they don't ask a question about food debates because we haven't done our work to get voters to care about it um, and this notion that there's some criticism about like why didn't you Ask that it's just such garbage. It's like do your job, like create a movement, organize people, get them out to vote on on this issue. And if you do, I guarantee you, politicians are going to be answering questions on food. But right now, nobody's voting on food. They're voting on the economy. They're voting on healthcare. They're voting on education, and and uh, and that's it. You know, um, so you know, you have to build. Uh, you know a real political movement if you want politics to change the truth of the matter is we got lucky with the first lady, like she wasn 't earned by the quote unquote food movement, whatever it is um, we just got lucky uh, and so I think we we felt i think as a and I say this to me as like you know a food movement person um that somehow she was a product of some kind of political, she was product of a cultural change that we're saying, which is really important. The, the precursor to political transformation is a cultural transformation. So we're starting, to, we're seeing the beginnings of a cultural transformation. The question is, can we turn that into a political transformation? And I think that's the, that's the work. So it's important, but I also just wanna be really clear that food is not like healthcare policy. It's not like education policy. It is much, much, more deeply rooted in our culture and so focusing on transforming our culture and the expectations of our culture and the norms in our culture are going to be I think more important than the policies themselves uh, uh, ultimately you're going to need both to really unlock the potential that we want and to get to the place that we want to be policy's got to shift um, but, but right now like you know the narratives around it's ag subsidies it's just totally not accurate it's literally wrong uh, uh, it's not the reason why corn costs little, it's because it's subsidized, it's just it's actually because of the research dollars over the last 50 years. We can grow those crops really efficiently compared to fruits and vegetables, which have got no research dollars and are grown in very inefficient fashions. That's the main reason you see the cost disparity. Um, and so, there's no one magic bullet, you know. It's not like, when we get rid of subsidies, which we did, by the way, got rid of direct payments. Um, they're still subsidized through crop insurance, some other things, but there's no like magic bullet. It's not the government's fault we're eating the way we are. Uh, it's it's just much more complicated than that, and we got to own that. Uh, if we just keep thinking it's because the government, there's nothing we can do because the government or just government can fix this, we're just, we're not going to be effective. And so we would all be wise to start taking a much more nuanced approach to what change is actually going to look like.
1: For. Young people that listen to this podcast, what is one piece of advice you could give them on just sort of doing something yeah. at all? You know, yeah. whether it's eating a salad or actually calling your rep or. <laughs> well, first of
2: all, eating is a really important part of it. Uh, you know, we're voting with. So, you know, industry is scared. They don't know what to do. They see young people coming. They know they care about it. They're not. They're totally out of position for it. And they're listening to, like, what are people buying? The reason why the big guys are starting to change is only because young people are buying different stuff and they're panicked like for real panicked you know when we came in the White House the CEOs didn't care about this issue they weren't worried about health uh, now it's all they think about and sustainability is now starting to emerge as well um, and it's only because they're losing share because um, because young people are voting differently with with their dollars so that's I can't overstate how important that is to make decisions based on your values in terms of what you eat. And then I just think wherever you are, whatever you're doing, take, take these values to that institution. So if you're in college, you know, make sure you're engaging the dean and the food service director and talk about how we're gonna get better food into cafeterias. If you're, you know, got a new job, uh, try, to, try to make sure the environment you're working in is as healthy as you can. I'm sure there's somebody there who's, that's their responsibility. Um, just be engaged on this issue wherever you are. You don't have to start your own. If you want to start your own nonprofit or join nonprofit, you can totally. That's great. But you don't don't feel like to have a voice and to have an impact. Um, you have to start some whole big endeavor on your own. Uh, I'm not discouraging that, but um, but it's about taking these values and, and uh, to everything we do. That, that's how you weave a fabric of a, a much healthier, more sustainable future.
1: Thanks so much to Sam Cass for taking the time to share a beer with us. A big thanks to Other Half Brewing Company, Tiffany Johnson and Sam Richardson for being gracious hosts and serving us those tasty brews. And if you haven't been to Other Half Brewing, you should definitely get over there ASAP. Thank you to Phil Damachofsky, my podcast producer. And thank you to all you who are listening out there. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode. So until then, get all of our delicious Munchies content over at munchies.tv. Hit us up at Munchies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook too. And if you like the show, show us some love. Rate it on iTunes because it actually helps us out. I'm Helen Holliman. I'll catch you soon.